Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called God Is. In this series, we're learning who God is and how he wants to relate to us. Thanks for joining us. Well, this morning we are continuing a series that we've been doing throughout the summer as a church, a series that we've called Our God Is. And if you haven't been with us, basically we've been looking at some of the different names of God that we find in the Bible with the hope that we can know who our God is better, but more importantly than that, how God wants to relate to us and how we can relate to him. Maybe you didn't realize this, that there are over 70 names for God in the Bible. And so obviously this summer we're just scratching the surface. But our hope, our prayer is that it's been helpful for you, as it has been for me, to sort of expand our understanding of who God is. But more importantly than that, to expand our love for him. Because the goal is for this to dig down into our hearts Now, this morning I have the privilege to speak to you about the name of God that was the catalyst for the biggest turning point in my life. In fact, as I've thought about this message the last several weeks, if I just had like one more message to give, like if I was just told, here's the last message you can give, you can give one more message, I really think this is the message that I would want people to hear. And some of that has to do just with my story. Some of you have been here before, you know my story, but for those who haven't, uh, when I was young, I grew up in the church. I was actually a pastor's kid, but my view of Christianity was that it was a performance thing. In other words, God's love for me, or as we've talked about in this series, how I relate to God and how God relates to me, was based on how well I was performing for him. And you perform, of course, by doing good works. So when I was performing well, I felt like God loved me. When I wasn't performing well, when I was failing, when I was falling into sin, I was sure that God was disappointed in me. Now at its essence, what that is called is religion. Where we base our relationship with God upon the performance of our good works. But as I was going to discover in high school, that's not what Christianity is actually about. And what changed it for me was this incredible truth we're going to talk about together this morning. It all started when I began a study on the Lord's Prayer. You see, prayer, I knew as a Christian, was one of those good works that God wanted me to be good at. But I wasn't very good at it. I know a lot of you can relate to that. So I thought, well, I got to get better at prayer if I'm going to perform well for God. And so I began to do a study on prayer. And the very first study I did was on the Lord's Prayer. What better place to start? And so I read those words that we've probably said and read hundreds of times together, our Father. And for some reason on this day, my junior year of high school, something clicked for me about those words that never had before. And here's what it was. If you're on your notes, Jesus invites his disciples to call God Father or Abba, which is the Aramaic name for it. And that's the name of God I want to look at together with you this morning. Now, we are so familiar with the calling God Father. I don't think we appreciate today just how radical it was that God would call, or Jesus would call him that. In fact, in the Old Testament, God is only referred to Father as 14 times. And every time God is referred to as Father, it's in a very impersonal way. Never in the Old Testament do you see God referred to as Father personally. Think of it this way. We call George Washington the Father of our nation. And in the same way, Old Testament, when talking about God the Father, it has that more as an image. But then Jesus comes on the scene and he turns everything upside down. He begins to use... Father as the only name for God. 
Look at the Bible. The only time Jesus uses another name for God is when he's hanging on the cross in Psalm 22, quoting Psalm 22, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every other time Jesus addresses God, he calls him Father or Abba. Now you may hear that and go, well, of course, he's God's son. That makes sense. But did you hear the first word of the Lord's Prayer? Jesus invites us to refer to him as Father as well. He says, our Father, our Father. This, as I said, was the catalyst for a huge turning point in my life. I started digging deeper into this, and I came across passages like the one we're going to look at together this morning in Romans 8. And what I discovered shocked me. If you're following on your notes with me this morning, God isn't interested in our religion. He's not interested in our religion. What he wants is a relationship. And so I went on a journey and I discovered that the gospel, the thing we call the good news of Jesus, goes way beyond what I thought it went beyond. I thought the gospel was just the forgiveness of sins, which it is that, and that's a really good thing. We are sinners, and the cross of Christ forgives us for our sins, but it's so much more than that. The gospel is also an invitation into a covenant relationship with God. We can become a part of God's family and know him intimately and personally as Father. And so as we're going to see this morning, the implications of this name for God really should fundamentally change the way you view your identity. Or to put it in the way we've talked about in this series, it should change the way you relate to God and how God wants to relate to you. It did for me, and I'm praying it will do the same for many of you because I know in a church this size, when we think about God, many of you are in the same situation I was when I was younger. It hasn't dug into your heart yet. Father is just a word. It's not a way of life. It's not a way of being. My prayer for you, it will dig deep into your heart this morning. So let me invite you to take your Bible and turn it, if you haven't already, to Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 14. And if you're still getting used to where things are in your Bible, that's okay. Romans is probably about four-fifths of the way back, kind of near the back of the Bible. Hopefully you can find it around that. And if you don't have a Bible, always encourage you to grab one of the ones that we have available in the seat underneath you there. You can find Romans 8 on page 916 of those black Bibles. Now before we actually look at this, I need to say one more important thing about the name Father. Because I know for many of you in this room, the word Father does not have positive connotations to it because of your earthly father. I mean, of course, it's natural for us when we think of God as father to then think about our earthly father and how the two of them relate. But I found this quote from Michael Reeves very helpful that I have up on the screen here, and I want us to consider this, especially if this is a struggle for you. For some, the word father is associated with a host of dark images. One's heart goes out to the children of such fathers, and those of us who are fathers ourselves know that we too are far from perfect. But God the Father is not called Father because he copies earthly fathers. He is not some pumped up version of your dad. To transfer the failings of earthly fathers to him is quite simply a misstep. Instead, things are the other way around. It is that all human fathers are supposed to reflect him. Only where some do that well, Others do a better job of reflecting the devil. No earthly father is perfect. I know that all too well, being a dad myself. I loved Eric's story earlier this morning. We will all have failures and faults. In fact, as this author says, some fathers are actually evil, and that's a shame. But my prayer for us is whatever your relationship is with your father, some of you have good relationships, 
Whatever it is that we can set that aside and we can joyfully, joyfully receive the good news that God wants to be our perfect father and all of that means. And so that's what we're seeking after together this morning. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray? Lord, I'm not praying right now because it's a good work and I'm trying to impress you or perform. We're praying right now as the church because we need you. Only you can really open up your word to us. We're told that. So I can stand up here and I can talk and talk and talk, but unless your spirit chooses to dwell in this place, to open up our hearts and minds, it's all meaningless. But we don't want this time to be wasted. We don't want it to be meaningless. We pray that you would give us the good food of your word and that we would digest it and it would change us from the inside out. And together we pray this with hope in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now before we look at verse 14, I think it's important for me to summarize what Paul has said in the earlier verses. So starting in Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, we're told that in Christ, if you've trusted Christ, there is no longer any condemnation for you. This is the part of the gospel where we're told you have been forgiven completely. It's called justification. But he goes on to say in verses 5 through 13, not only are you forgiven, but at that moment you trusted Christ, you received the very Spirit of God to help you live the Christian life. In other words, here's some more good news. You're forgiven, and now you no longer have to give in to the power of sin. Why? Because you have the Spirit of God living in you. And that leads us to even better good news, starting in verse 14, which is our verse this morning. It says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Now read verse 15 out loud on your notes with me there. It says, the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, though that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, let me finish the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So if you're following on your notes, here's what the gospel says. Above everything else we've talked about already, it also says that in Christ we have been adopted to sonship. We have been adopted to sonship. And I'm using that word sonship for a very specific reason I'll talk about in a moment here. But to understand what it means for us to be able to call God Father or Abba, you can't not understand what it means that you've been adopted as a son. The Apostle Paul is the only author in the New Testament to use this word adoption, and there's no question that he's borrowing it from the Roman world in which he lived. It's a Greek word that legally just means to make you a son. It's a little different than the way we think of adoption today. You know, we often think today in terms of adopting children and why there's some similarities. In the Roman world, actually, adoption was mostly done with an adult, sometimes with children, but most often with adults. And here's how it would usually work. There would be a very wealthy person, a wealthy man, who didn't want to lose his estate, but he had no sons to pass it on to. And so he would approach a young man in his community that he admired and he respected and he would come to him and he would say, I want to make you my son. I want to adopt you so that everything that I have will become yours. Now when this process was uh, formalized, here's three things that would happen legally to this new son. Number one, all of his old obligations were canceled. All of his debts canceled. Pay attention to that. Secondly, this son, at that moment he was adopted, became just as wealthy as his father. 
Everything that his father owned now belonged to him. He immediately gets the father's name and he gets all of the father's privileges. He is the heir of the estate. And then last, the son, of course, now has the responsibility to carry on the family's name. So this person, this young man who's adopted as a firstborn son in this family, has all the rights, all the responsibilities of a legitimate son. You could say he is a new person. Does that sound familiar at all to what happens to us when we come to Christ? Now, one more observation. Some of you are probably wondering, well, what about daughters? What's Paul's problem here? Why is he only talking about sons? Well, in the Roman world, this word literally just means sonship. Only a son, only a firstborn son could have these privileges. In Roman culture, women were not allowed any of these rights. Only men could be adopted and made heirs. But I hope you see what Paul has done here. He has taken a very technical and legal Roman term, adoption, and who does he apply it to? All Christians. It doesn't matter if you're a male or a female, if you're a Greek or you're a Jew. Far from being sexist, Paul is being incredibly radical here. He is using a familiar Roman term and saying any person who comes to Christ receives the privileges of a firstborn son. Guys, are you offended if I call you the bride of Christ? Of course we're not offended, right? It's a metaphor the Bible uses to explain our status, to explain our identity in the same way this legal term Paul is using women. It's a way for saying you are a firstborn son. When you are adopted into God's family, you receive all those things we talked about. Now to fully understand what it means to be adopted, I'm gonna ask us several questions. And the first question is, how did it happen? How does it happen that a person is adopted as God's son? Well, in Romans 8, 14, it's clear. Adoption comes when we have the spirit of God. Well, how do you know you have the spirit of God? Well, it's pretty simple. In verse 2 and verse 11 of Romans 8, we're told we have the spirit of God when we trust in Christ. When you came to that moment in your life and you said, I need a savior. I'm a sinner. I'm far from God. You got on your knee and you surrendered to him as Lord. That moment, several things happened. Number one, you were justified, the Bible says. You were forgiven of all your sin. No longer any condemnation in Christ Jesus. Praise God, that's good news. It doesn't stop there. You received the spirit of God in your life. The Holy Spirit. And you were adopted at that moment into God's family. If you're falling on your notes, everyone who trusts Christ received the Spirit, and everyone who has the Spirit is adopted by the Father. It's our DNA as Christians. Peggy and I have two children, Will and Kirsten. The moment they were born, they were a combination of our DNA. It's the same for every one of us in this room. We're the combination of our parents' DNA. I love the image Jesus uses in John 3. We must be born again. And what happens when we're born again? The moment we trust Christ, we receive his DNA. We receive his spirit in our life. So verse 14 is clear. Hear me, if you don't have the spirit of God then you're not God's son. But having the spirit of God is the very definition of being a Christian. We are made new creations in Christ Jesus. Verse 15 explains this further. Christians are people who have received the spirit of sonship. I want to point out a word to you there that's very important. It's that word receive. 
The image of adoption tells us that no one is naturally born into a relationship with God. The fact is you must receive that status. This means there is a time, and for some of you, maybe it's right now, that you're lost. That you are a spiritual orphan because nobody is naturally a child of God. It is not an automatic thing. The image of adoption tells us that our relationship is based 100% entirely completely upon a decision made by the Father. This is where adoption in our world does correlate, right? We have many families in our church who have adopted children. Was any of the children's decision for that to happen? Did one child say, you should adopt me because I've performed well for you, I've earned this, I deserve this? None of the children in this church who have been adopted would say that. They simply received the gift that the parents wanted to give them, to welcome them into the family. It's the same thing with the gospel. We don't earn it. It's not a right, it's not a privilege, it's a gift that we receive, a legal action that the Father takes on our behalf. If you're following on your notes, our status as sons is received, not earned. Our children don't earn the name Patsia. The moment they were born, that was their status. And it's the same for us, the moment we're born again, not because of what you've done, because of a choice you simply receive the gift God has given you to be his child. Think of it this way, you've heard this illustration, I'm sure, that our salvation is like a judge who declares us not guilty. Excuse me, declares us guilty. And then comes out from behind the bench and pays the penalty or pays the fine for us. Have you heard that before? That's like the gospel. But it doesn't go far enough. For the truth is, according to Romans 8, the judge not only pays the penalty, he or she then takes us home and adopts us into his or her family. That's the gospel. And as children of his family, at that moment that happens, we receive a number of benefits and privileges and responsibilities. In fact, just to go over some of these, I think it just gets even better and better. So let's ask this second question. What does adoption mean for us? And just in these verses, I see several things. There are more we could go over, but here are four. The first is that means we're given a new identity. We're given a new identity. Whatever lie, whatever names you've believed about yourself in the past, lies like, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, I'm a failure, I don't deserve this. Some of you remember this good t-shirt from our Ephesians series. We walk around with this, believing all these things, these lies, I'm unloved, I don't have a purpose, I'm unsuccessful, I'm pathetic. Whether these are lives we brought about ourselves or we've heard people told us, these are things that we carry with us in life. But the gospel says you've been given a new name. Those lies no longer exist. You carry the name of Christ now. You are a son in his family. You legally have a right to it. You can claim it as your own. It cannot be taken away. This means two things. If you're again on your notes there, in verse 15 we see it gives us security. We're not to fear, but we're to enjoy our relationship with God. An employee or a servant basically obeys out of fear of punishment, but a child-parent relationship, it's not characterized by fear. You can't lose that relationship. No matter how much our children fail, they will always be a part of our family. It's the same for us with Christ. The other thing it gives us is assurance, if you're on your notes. 
Security and assurance. Somehow, in verse 16, it says, the Spirit will come alongside of us and give us assurance that we are truly in God's family. We will know we are his. And it can never be taken away. This week, a friend of mine sent me an article written by Lisa Brennan Jobs, who is Steve Jobs' daughter, because she knew I was going to be talking about this subject. And if you want to read a heartbreaking story, read this story. Because when Lisa was first born, her father totally denied being her father. In fact, he was forced to have to take a DNA test to prove it. When it was proven, their relationship was always based on fear and insecurity. It's heartbreaking. She was never sure. She was always walking on eggshells. She never knew how he really felt about her. And I think that's how many people view their relationship with God. And it's so unfortunate. He's given you a new name, a new identity. And with that comes incredible security and incredible assurance. Assurance of his everlasting love. The second thing adoption means is we have intimate access to our father. The name I chose for God wasn't just father, it's Abba. We're not talking about a 70s rock band. We're talking about the Aramaic word for daddy. Dad, do you hear the intimacy there? What an audacious claim that Christianity makes, that we can refer to the creator of the entire universe as Abba, that we can have access to him, confidence before him in that way. There's an old picture back when John Kennedy was president that I think sums this up well. I love this. Here is perhaps the most powerful man in the world at his desk in the Oval Office, and who's underneath his desk there? Who has access to this powerful man? His son. It's the same for us. Next week, Luke's going to talk about how God is El Shaddai. He is the most powerful God. He is sovereign. And yet, today, we're learning this incredible thing. He's also Abba. He's Father, and he welcomes us to sit at his feet. It's how Christians can approach the most powerful God in the universe. Third thing adoption means is that we're given an inheritance. I have to admit we're treading into ground that I still don't fully understand here, but as verse 17 says, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. At the moment you're adopted, you become a full heir in the house of God. This means that everything that belongs to Christ belongs to you as well. Now get this, in ancient times, only the firstborn son was the heir. Only the firstborn son got the privileges and the rights to carry on the family name. The other children may have been loved and taken care of, but it was only the firstborn son who was the heir. But in Christ, we're told that all Christians are co-heirs with Christ, the firstborn son. Everything he has, both now and forever, is ours to share with him. I don't fully comprehend that. No wonder the writers of the New Testament say our suffering and troubles that we face here on life are just light and momentary, though, compared to the glory that awaits us in eternity. Fourth thing adoption brings us is that we will bear the likeness of our family. We will bear the likeness of our family. Thought of a way to try to 
get this one in our head here. And so I'm going to show you some pictures of some famous people and their children. And you tell me if they bear their likeness. Here's the first one. That's Reese Witherspoon and her daughter. You think she bears the likeness? Pretty clear. Here's the next one. Tom Hanks and his son. They bear the family resemblance. He bears the family resemblance. Next one. That's Demi Moore and her daughter. Believe it or not, a 30-year difference between them there. And then last, there's Brad Pitt and his son. Now, they all naturally bear the likeness of their parents. And while it may not be natural for us, it's a process. The same thing is going to happen to us as we become children of God. We're going to become more and more like our brother Christ. And that's really the aim of the whole Christian life. It's not following a set of rules. It's becoming more like Christ. That means we abide by the rules of the family. We follow the example of obedience he set before us. We begin to look like him. And again, it doesn't happen overnight, unlike adoption. This is a process called sanctification. And in fact, I'll just say God often uses three ways to help us in this process, three ways we don't like so much. He uses discipline. He uses obedience. And yes, he even uses suffering. Just like any healthy family, there must be discipline if a child is going to grow and mature. Some of us think of discipline as a bad word, don't we? But discipline isn't the same as punishment. Discipline without it will allow our kids to become reckless and entitled. Discipline, when done in love, not punishment, is always tended to bless, to encourage, to help. The author of Hebrews understood this and he applied it to the discipline that God sometimes needs in our lives, gives us in our lives. He writes this in Hebrews 12.10. They disciplined us for a little while, talking about earthly parents, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. What's the purpose of discipline? To share in his holiness, to become like Jesus. Obedience, that's another word we don't love so much. But you know, every family has a certain list of rules, right? Some of the rules in our house include put the seat down when you're done. (laughs) Make your bed, preferably before you're going to bed the next day. In summer, that's not always easy. I mean, we got other rules here. And again, as a child, you could look at those rules and go, oh, my parents are just trying to be a killjoy. They don't want me to have any fun in life. Or you can look at them and go, my parents are trying to help me develop into a mature person. A person who understands that life has certain duties to it and obligations. And in the same way, we have been given a rule book. That's not all the Bible is. It's way more than that. But there are some rules in the Bible. And God says, trust me with this. Follow this. This is a light unto your feet. I promise you, as you do this, you will grow and you will mature and you will become more and more like Jesus. Discipline, obedience, and then, of course, suffering. I don't understand how this works too much, but we're told in verse 17 that as we suffer, we follow the very example of Jesus. Maybe more than anything else, suffering is a way for God to refine us in our character, in our attitudes. We bear the family likeness of Jesus who suffered on our behalf. And so we'll bear the likeness of Christ. And that's his goal for you and for me as a part of his family. Now, the last question I'm going to answer with you this morning, and if you've zoned out, 
I'm asking you to zone back in here because this is really, if you leave without this, I've failed completely. Here's the question, why? Why did God do this? Why would he adopt us to sonship in his family? We're given part of the answer in Ephesians 1.5 where he is, Paul is talking again about adoption. Would you read it out loud with me on your notes from the New Living Translation? It says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. I love that. He wanted to do it. It gave him great pleasure to do it. He did not adopt you grudgingly because he had to. He adopted you because he wanted you in his family. Do you believe that? Has that sunk deep down into your heart or do you still believe that you're unwanted and unloved? Do you believe what Jesus says in John 17? Father, you have loved them just as you have loved me. That God, when he sees you, the Father, he loves you as much as he loves his firstborn son, Jesus Christ, his only begotten. Dr. J.I. Packer once said, and again, these are up on the screen with you, if you want to follow. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Friends, as I shared in the beginning, this was my story. I didn't believe that. I didn't believe this is how God felt towards me. And the reason is, it was all down to what I believed about my identity. And if I could boil it down, here's what I thought about myself, and I think many people still today do, and this is true for me, it might be true for you if you're on your notes. Many Christians think they are slaves, not sons. Many Christians think, yes, my sins may have been pardoned by the judge, but they know nothing about the Abba who welcomes them into their family. Now, we may not say that. We may, with the rest of the church, be fine saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. But deep down, this is really what you're believing. I heard an illustration several years ago from Tim Keller that really brings this home. He asked the question, have any of you seen the show Downton Abbey? Go ahead and raise your hand. Have you seen Downton Abbey? Wow, the last service there were three of you, so this is going to go way better. (laughs) So Downton Abbey is about a very wealthy family in England, and they own this gigantic house. And in this house, on the bottom floor, live servants, and in the top floor live the children. And the centerpiece of this house, the place where the house, you know, the whole circle is around this father figure of the house. His name is Lord Grantham. And both the people living downstairs and both the people living upstairs are expected to obey the father. But fundamentally, what's the difference between the people living downstairs and the people living upstairs? Ultimately, the servants know that they can be expelled from the house if they don't obey the master. They could be demoted. They could be fired. In other words, they're living in this house with the spirit of fear. And if you've seen the show, you know it's true. But the people living in the top floor, the children of the father say, this is my house. 
I can't be expelled from it. This is my father. Our relationship is sure, even when I make mistakes. A child in that house lives with a sense of freedom. So do you see here that a slave and a son can obey the same person, but with radically different motives? One out of fear and one out of fear, freedom. Let's apply that to our Christian lives. If you're on your notes, a slave, and by that I mean someone who views that as their identity, obeys the father out of fear and duty. If you see yourself as a slave, you're full of fear, and you obey out of obligation, and that leads to the works righteousness faith that I had. When I do well, the father loves me. When I fall short, I'm walking on eggshells. He might kick me out at any moment. Tim Keller says it this way, a slave mentality in the Christian life says, I am certainly not worthy to be a child of God. All I can hope for is to struggle along as his employee. If I perform well, God will pay me my wages. He will answer my prayers, give me his favor and protect me. But if I perform poorly, he may fire me. Is that your story? A son relates to the father in a totally different way. A son relates to the father in freedom. Children experience freedom in life, a sense of authority, a sense of security, as we already talked about, a sense of this is my father's house. I belong. I belong no matter what I do. And so something fundamentally shifted in my life that I hope shifts for you as well. When I have a good week, when I perform well, when I don't fall short of God's standards for me, what stopped happening in my life is I don't get all puffed up and go, oh, I belong in this house. See, I prove myself. On the other hand, when I fail, when I have a terrible week, I don't go, oh, I don't belong in this house. The Father can't possibly welcome me. Friends, we're in the house, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done. We are adopted, secure, assured. If you're on your notes, a son knows their acceptance isn't based on their performance. Do you know that? Are you still striving? Are you still working to prove yourself? I want to be clear here, this doesn't mean that obedience and, quote, good works aren't still important. But please hear fundamentally the motivation for where they come from has changed for us. The motivation isn't out of fear and a sense of trying to prove myself to God anymore. The motivation is out of gratitude. That my father really loves me and he wants the best for me. And so I'm going to obey out of that. If you're on your notes, obedience is a joy and privilege, not a burden. As we close and prepare for communion, let me just ask you again the most important question you could hear today. Are you a slave or are you a son? Do you believe the lie that you're unwanted and unloved or do you know the truth that before the world even began, the Father's purpose for you was to invite you into his family for no other reason than it gave him great pleasure? That God is love. What would it look like do you have an imagination if you started living out of a sense of that as your identity? What would it look like to relate to God as Abba? 
How would it change your perspective of the Christian life? How would it change your perspective of discipline and obedience and yes, even suffering? If you're following on your notes here, here's the question for us to consider as we prepare. Do I know God as the Father who adopted me in love? Do I relate to him as the Father who adopted me in love? Friends, this is why we call it good news. This is why we celebrate. This is why we gather. Let's pray. Abba, as we prepare ourselves now to take communion, something you've commanded us to do, it's a reminder that for us to be called your children costs you everything. It costs you your son, your son who now shares his glory with us as co-heirs. It's too much for us. What can we do but praise you? What can we do but give our lives to you as a living sacrifice? What can we do but remember? And that's what we do now. We take the opportunity to remember that you have made us new in Christ. You've given us a new name, a new place, a new family. You are Father, and we love you. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.